an ironic media production. Visit us at ironickmedia.com. This is an interview with one of my old everyday hero buddies, Captain Bill Kirshner. Bill's now 84 years old, but still sharp as ever. He and I flew together at TWA and at Saudi Arabian Airlines in the late 70s, where we were both on temporary assignment in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. One of the reasons I'm interviewing people like Bill, I want you to be able to look back over our shoulders into the glory days of aviation, an era that I was privileged to be a part of, and the time we'll never see again. I asked Bill about his beginnings as an aviator and how he progressed over his 36-year flying career. But I especially wanted you to hear about his experience as a pilot and check captain for Saudi Arabian Airlines out of Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, in the late 70s and early 80s. You're going to love the special parts of his interview, especially his experience with his Saudi pilot students who actually memorized the Koran as kids and how that affected their pilot skills, flying kids in some of the most remote desert regions of the Saudi Arabian Kingdom. You pilots and aviation enthusiasts are especially going to like his innovative fog dispersal technique at the Saudi Arabian Dahran Airport, and also his escape experiences to his European villas. You'll hear him mention the term quaji. It's a term of uh, questionable affection that the Arabs use to describe us American aviators who've worked for the airline. Stick around to the end of the podcast while you'll hear him have to stop and remember how many true hero experiences he had and his own miracle on the Hudson. I somewhat apologize for the length of this podcast, but as they say in podcast land, Make it as long as it needs to be to tell the story. So put on your headset, strap in, and come along for the flight back in time to the glory days of aviation, where we flew the queen of the skies to parts unknown at the time. Hey, Everyday Heroes, I'm Bert Botta. Do you know what every man wants? If you can't come up immediately with the answer to that question, then pay close attention to my Everyday Heroes podcast series for golfs. That means guys over 50. And if you're not a guy over 50, or even if you're a gal, don't worry. There's going to be some very cool stuff here for both men and women. I've discovered answers to the kind of questions that every man has. And now I'm ready to help you put those answers to work in your life through these podcasts. If you take in what I have to share, it very well could change your life and help you do more than just push back the aging process. And my podcasts are mostly about aviation everyday heroes, but they're going to be a mix of women and men heroes just like you. So let's jump into this and see if what we talk about here helps bring out your own everyday hero. I am one of the few TWA captains that started in fleet service of uh, washing airplanes and uh, and emptying pots. So, but I'll, I'll I'll get to that. Ooh, love it! I love that. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, the the way I got interested in aviation was uh, my uh, father was a really uh, wonderful model airplane builder. So I built gliders as a kid and and all that kind of stuff. But then I was also very interested in underwater photography. And I was also a qualified engine mechanic when I got out of the Navy and got hired with the TWA in September 9th of 1960, uh, washing airplanes and emptying pots off the Connies and, and all that. The reason that I did that was the recommendation was to get involved with TWA seniority ASAP because they had a mechanic slot coming open. So I did, and sure enough, December of that year, I was a uh, engine mechanic with the TWA, and uh, I was in uh, college at the time to get my uh, associates in arts degree in aircraft maintenance engineering, which means I really know how to 
clean an airplane. <laughs> especially the labs. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 especially the labs, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, I was a mechanic with them for three and a half years, but I was flying full time getting uh, all my civilian ratings. And uh, and eventually, in April of 1963, I went to work with uh, Zentop Air Transport up in uh, Detroit, Michigan. I got a furlough notice from uh, Zantop November of that year. In the same mailbox, I got a letter from TWA asking me if I could make a class starting date of November 18th in 1963. Could I? And so uh, I started with them that year and uh, flew all the way until uh, August of 1996, which I had to retire at age 60. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then along the way, I checked out. I was the first new hire to check out as captain. That was May of 1967. And then I went from the uh, DC-9 to the Convair 880 to the 707, 727, L-1011, and uh, then the 747. And I instructed on most of those airplanes, the, the 880 and the uh, 707, 1011, and uh, 747. We had the Saudi contract in 1976. We had some friends that were over there, uh, Rufus Mosley and a few other guys. Uh, we were at a party one night in Incline Village, Nevada. One of them was explaining, he and his wife were there, and, and they were explaining uh, what they were doing in Saudi and how much fun it was. And I can stuff, and my wife says, hey, why don't we do something like that? So I had been instructing on the 7-0 out of San Francisco. I went in to see Jack Robertson, the chief pilot, and next thing I know, September of 1976, I was in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, along with an old buddy, Bert Bata. Ah. (laughs) But we didn't get there until we got kicked off the 1011, right? Remember? Yeah, well, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So for some reason, that captain did not like quadgies, as we were called. Right. Yeah. Even though... TWA checked him out, got him all his licenses and all that kind of stuff. He he, he was very aggressive against uh, Westerners, as it were. Yeah. That, that's kind of the way it goes. Yeah, because as I remember, it took us, what, about a week or 10 days to get down there, huh? Oh, yeah. We suffered uh, in London there, you know, for quite a while until we got permission right. to get back in the cockpit again. I guess I guess they called up Saudi and said, you better get these guys down here. We're paying them, you know, so we want to put them to work. Yeah, we suffered for a week or 10 days at the full company expense. Yeah, yeah that was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that really was. Yeah, so we got down there and uh, checked out on the 70, and then eventually, uh, well, I was instructed on the 707. The uh, gentleman that was heading up the whole program, uh, Wes Matten, had to leave to come back to TWA to fly the 1011 and asked me to take over that whole 707 operation down there, which I did kind of an interesting thing. When I got the uh, 707 project from Wes, uh, he was using a simulator in a Karachi, Pakistan, the 707 simulator, and uh, it was terrible. Mm-hmm. And, and so I needed, I needed to do something. But what really changed my mind, we had a training scenario going on over there and uh, came back one night to go to the Interno- Intercontinental Hotel. And they had hung President Buto from the uh, power lines outside the Intercontinental Hotel. And I thought, hmm, yeah, <laughs> time to make a move, Willie. <laughs> so, so I did. Uh, I went up and checked out uh, Lutanza simulators, uh, Cairo, uh, Egypt Air simulators, eventually settled on a brand new 
Qantas simulator that was uh, given to the Jordanians in Amman, Jordan. So I moved my training program up to Amman, Jordan. It was there all the way until we left in 1983. And that, that, yeah, that simulator was terrific because it had side window capability, which meant you could give rating rides in the sim. Uh Yeah. But then we also did the training. All our ratings eventually uh, would culminate in an airplane check ride where uh, an FAA guy would come over from New York. And so uh, all of our ratings were top quality uh, FAA uh, ATP ratings at the time. Now, were your students both Saudis and Quadjis? Yeah, mainly Quadjis and I would say about two-thirds Quadjis, a third Saudis. These guys were were they Saudi new hires or were they had been been experienced in other aircraft? What was your experience instructing them? Well, by the time I got them, Bert, they had been a co-pilot and then captains on the uh, 737. When they showed up on our 707, my 707 program, they had about 5,000 hours of pilot and command time, and they were all very, very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only deficiency that, that I could see was uh, the ability to think outside the uh, training manuals, as were, because they were taught to memorize the Koran from scratch as, as children, yeah. they could memorize any of the uh, aircraft manuals, including the 707 manual. So I had to explain to them that you could go right off the end of the runway with that book in your lap. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but they were very good. They learned very quickly and they were all very, very nice individuals. Now, they liked the Quajis and I liked them. I mean, so we, we got along really well. What kind of flying did you do over there? And what was your experience going into some of those other places that, you know, like we weren't used to? How long did it take you to get used to operating over there? in and out of the desert strips and places like that? Yeah, well, I tell you what, uh, that's that's an outstanding question. It's like going into Medina. The runway at Medina sits right at the edge of a lava flow. You could get all kinds of winds off the end of that runway, but we would do a line training. In other words, we would ride around the system prior to getting uh, into the left seat solo. And so I learned a lot about that. So by the time I got to uh, fly my own airplane, I was very well versed in all of the airports. I, I remember Medina, I, you know, I never got out of the co-pilot seat over there because I wasn't rated and I didn't go over there as a captain. But as I remember, one guy I was flying with, and I don't remember who it was, he wouldn't let me look out the window because I was an I was, uh, infidel and I wasn't supposed to be looking at the city. Was that the same experience you had? Well, I could look at the city because I was in the left seat and all that yeah, stuff. But, exactly, but, but, but I couldn't. Oh, yeah, so you must have been with an Arab guy. Oh, I was with, yeah, with uh, Saudi Khadib or whatever. whatever. Oh, 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 yeah, right, right, right. Mohammed Khadib or something like that. Yeah, something like that, yeah. But it was yeah, really right. funny. I said, well, how do you like me? How do you want me to fly this thing if I'm not supposed to look out the window? So, <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we worked it out. But <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, God. Yeah, so in answer to your question, I, I guess, Bert, was uh, I really paid attention to every flight, every leg, and every airport. I really studied the airports by going to, you know, Europe and uh, and wherever, especially the further east you got, like uh, Karachi and uh, 
Hong Kong and a few places that we were going into, Bombay. So I really familiarized myself with all those prior to going in. Yeah. And what were some of the tougher ones? I mean, besides Hong Kong, besides the Kai Tak? Well, you had to be careful about Medina because of that that sloping uh, lava flow winds. I did a lot of my training up in Taif, which was an outstanding airport. But here again, lots of wind right off the Red Sea. So uh, I'd take my students up there early in the morning because I would know the afternoon you're going to have winds all over the place. Yeah. Uh, Daharan was pretty straightforward. Oh, you'll get a kick out of this. You remember this fog we used to have in Daharan? Yeah. Okay, so we get out into the airplane, and it's zero, zero. I mean, it's pretty much rocks off. But I really needed to get back to Jeddah for a training program that I had coming up. So I asked, this is no joke, I asked Daharan Tower if we could get permission to taxi the length of the runway and with the RVR was zero, zero, you know, so, mm-hmm. so we got permission. So what I did was I briefed the crew. I said, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to run engines two and three forward, and we're going to put one and four in reverse, and we're going to taxi that whole runway. Swear to God. Okay, so we're about half power down there, you know, that kind of stuff, because we weren't going very fast because one and four were fighting two and three. You know, right, we're right. Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we're probably doing about eight knots all the way down that runway. But what it did was it changed the uh, temperature and dew point, and now got down to the end of the runway, and that Ron Tallis says, Sort of whatever our number was, is the RVR is now uh, <laughs> a Cav OK. I said, Hey, we crest and take, take off planes because we were all ready to go. Turned around and <laughs> blasted off. <laughs> well, what I didn't know was the Royal Flight, the guys that flying the Learjets, they were behind us. And he said, nice job, Saudi. And I looked around. I swear to God, I wish I had a picture of it. The only swath of earth you could see was the whole length of that runway. Everything was covered for hundreds of miles around with that fog. It's funny. Yeah, a really true story. That didn't become part of your operational procedures, though, did it? (laughs) Uh, No, it it, it didn't. But I did explain to uh, several of the guys that I checked out, the TWA guys coming over, that that was possible. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) what a riot. Then I finished up the uh, 7.0 program over there, came back, and... uh, well, I requalified on the 727, waiting for a slot on this on the 1011. Went to the 1011 and checked out. I instructed on that for about three years. And then in 1986, uh, had an opportunity to go to uh, the TWA training center on the 747 at Kennedy and became an instructor on the 74 all the way up until the end when I retired in uh, August of 1996. Oh, that is cool. That's when you commute? Yeah, I commuted out of Lake Tahoe all those years. As a matter of fact, I'm sitting that view I just showed you. I've been looking at that view for 50 years. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah um, but Bert, do you remember my wife, Bobby? Yeah, I, I yeah. met her when she was, uh, when you guys were, you had her over there in Saudi. Yeah. Right, right. Tremendous lady. So she was a TWA flight attendant. I'd come in off an 880 trip and she hated the 880. Matter of fact, Every flight attendant I've ever talked to hated the Convert 880 to work, but I love flying it. Mm-hmm. But in any event, so she came back off a 7-0 trip, and she was a senior to me. And we were living in Malibu, California at the time, and just married. And, and she says, honey, you know, we want to have children, but I don't think Malibu, California is a good place to raise them. How about if we move to Lake Tahoe? I said, mm-hmm. oh, honey, I love you. 
Ooh, wow. Yeah. I grabbed her, brought her up here. We bought the property in October of 69, built the house in 70, and uh, oh, wow. been here ever wow. since. Yeah, Ra- raised, yeah, raised five kids. The fifth kid was me, according to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, yeah, I remember being over there, and you sent her and the kids up to somewhere in Europe, didn't you, for school? Well, what I did was, one of the reasons we stayed there, we went over for 18 months like you, and then we stayed seven years because I rented a house or a villa in a different European country each year. So the kids got out of school kind of early because they didn't believe in Easter. Then they went back to school in September. So Mm. they had a nice long summer vacation. So the first year we lived in Zenvoort, Holland, and then the next year down off the coast of Italy and eventually France and Spain and Germany and all over the place. So So, would you commute from Jeddah up to those places? Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, uh, when we were living in Spain, uh, I don't know whether you remember or not, but we had that one-week trip to uh, Madrid from Jeddah, and it was only uh, one flight a week. Great. So I'd give a line check up to uh, Madrid, get off the airplane, and Bobby and the kids would be at the villa and whatnot, spend a week up there. And then the uh, next flight down, then I'd give a check ride back to Jetta. Oh, what a deal. What a deal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, it was really great. Yeah. That reminds me of that one flight that we flew into, uh, was it Dar es Salaam or somewhere in Africa and we'd go, there was one flight a week there also. Then we'd go land one day, go on safari, play, and then come back a week later and resume the flight. As I remember, I think that was in somewhere in Africa. Yeah, that was, uh, uh, Nairobi. uh, Yeah, I think it was Nairobi. Yeah. No wonder the airlines went broke. Will you know, (laughs) yeah, that was one, one flight a week. I mean, we can figure that one out. (laughs) Yeah. Remember we'd go and hit the ground. We'd party like crazy and then we'd sober up and then we'd go on safari and then come back and get straight and go fly again. Exactly. I mean, and and then collect a big paycheck at the end of the month. Say, whoa, hey, hey, this is a hell of a deal. Yeah, for sure. Oh, oh yeah. That and like you said, that was really the queen of the skies days that we were involved with that airline. Never again. I mean, you can't even describe something like that to the millennial pilots. No, you know, yeah. When I talk to people about that, especially the new guys and whatnot, they think I'm lying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, they don't want to admit that that could have ever happened. For if right. they allowed themselves to even think about it, it, would drive them crazy. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then 1991, TWA had a contract with. Uh, here's another license to steal with uh, a Nippon Cargo. So I went over there, checked out on uh, their 747-200 freighters, and I was with them for five years. Boy, that was, that was really great. Oh, and yes. I also, yeah, I was also a check captain uh, with the uh, Japanese uh, ANA, uh, well, and Nippon Cargo, as it were. You know, so. Yeah. I remember Tom yeah. Rosen was over there with you, wasn't he? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Matter of fact, Tom and I stay in contact. Matter of fact, I just got a, re- a really nice uh, email from him. It's here that Bill describes a flight they were flying for, Nippon Cargo, where a friend of ours, Tom Rosen, and he were shooting the approach to San Francisco and landing on runway one right. It was very seldom used for landings, and this particular time it was because the winds were coming out of the northeast and the hills rise up to the south when you're making the approach to one-way run right to land. 
and it makes it very tricky. You've got to have the aircraft in a proper landing configuration as you come in over those hills. And then there was, at the time, a group of very tall eucalyptus trees. So Bill describes that situation here. There was also a, a Japanese captain in the jump seat riding on this particular flight. So that's when he mentions Captain Yoshida. We had Captain Yoshida in the jump seat and going L.A. back to San Francisco. Well, it was one of those rare days where the wind was right down runway one. So they're landing on one right. And I had been in there on the 707 landing on one right. So I knew just exactly where you had to make the turn. What I was doing was making it a DME radius approach because, yeah. you know, you come in low over that hill and, and you had to be right on it because if you weren't, you'd break out, you'd be high, fast, and there's just no way. They go around time, you know, something like that. And you couldn't be too low and slow. Yeah, because so you'd be cleaning the eucalyptus leaves out of your landing gear. Exactly. And Tom was flying. I, I gave him the leg and I said, Captain Yoshida, if you don't mind, I'm going to let Tom make the approach in the landing because I know how to get the airplane in there. And Tom, I'll give you all the information that you need. And he's a really good pilot too, like you. Mm-hmm. And so what I was doing, I was watching the DME off the end of runway one right and whatnot. I said, okay, slow down, airspeed's fine. You know, to get the flaps and the gear out and that kind of stuff and made the turn to final and rolled right out on the Vassy lights. And mm-hmm. Captain Yoshida says, <laughs> so, yeah, then Tom went in, made a hell of a nice landing and all that kind of stuff. But then Yoshida called me in the office and he says, uh, uh, Captain, uh, you think that was uh, smart since you have experience? And uh, I thought it was safer since I knew what to do, when to do it. And Tom's a good pilot and uh, let him do it because not only that, he can see the runway from his side of the airplane. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're coming in on a high right base, you know. Yeah. So Tom said, Bill, I never forget that. And thank you for your trust in me and my uh, flying capability. And that was like about two weeks ago. <laughs> wow, that's beautiful. It's here where we're winding up the um, interview with Bill. But I asked him if he wanted to finish up with anything in particular. And he started to talk about his true heroics. He goes from an everyday hero to a real hero. Other than through this wonderful life of mine, I have saved five lives. I've always been a strong swimmer. And all of them had to do with uh, picking people out of rivers and and that kind of stuff. And uh, I've been through EMT training. And I had no idea. Well, that, no, you're definitely, you're definitely more than just an everyday hero. You're a, a real hero. Well, let's see, was that the last one or one before last? And my family and I, we were camping out down in Yosemite. It was April and the uh, McCollum River was running high and all that kind of stuff, you know. And I had just finished making camp and I walked over to the river and I looked down and said, wow, there's a hairbrush floating downstream. Well, what it was, was a blind kid with a crew cut. That was what the brush, there was a body under that thing. And I oh my dove, God. <laughs> yeah, I, I dove in, got him, he was 12 years old. Yeah, yeah, I got him and he's coughing and spitting. And, yeah, I pumped the water out of him and, and picked him up and brought him back to the, he was the son of some people uh, camping up the uh, stream a uh, little ways from where we were. And I, I brought him back as, does this belong to you? And mom was, oh, God, she hugged wow. me. And yeah, really, I, I, it was just one of those fate and destiny things, Bert. I mean, two seconds sooner or two seconds later, I'd have never seen him. 
It's here that Bill describes his own uh, miracle on the Hudson up in Newburgh, New York, on the Hudson River. Before I went out to L.A. to uh, get my licenses and whatnot, I was an operating engineer at the Central Hudson Gas and Electric. Here again, it was April. A buddy of mine and I went up to the top of the uh, steam station. Where was this, Will? This was in Newburgh, New York. Oh, and, okay. Uh, and so we're saying, I call what we were burning when I smoked at the time. And I looked out on the Hudson River and it was full of ice that was breaking up. And I said to my buddy, I said, oh, Christ, hey, there's, there's a boat out there upside down. I said, hey, God, there's four guys hanging on to it. Excuse me, three guys. So we went down and we had these little rowboats, uh, you know, little aluminum skiffs to take uh, care of the uh, intakes of the power plant and all that kind of stuff. So I told the uh, shift operator, I said, hey, there's uh, three guys out there in the river in a capsized boat. We need to go get them. He said, yeah, go get them. So we did. Rode out. I said to the guys, I said, okay, now, please don't try to get into our boat. Just hang on. Right. And, and we'll tow you to shore, which we did. And lo and behold, it was a grandfather, a son, and a grandson. And we hauled them out of the water. And by that time, the uh, meds had gotten there, you know, because the uh, hypothermia was starting to set in and all that. And so, they, well, they, they were floating around with ice all over the water. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah, so we got all written up in the paper and blah, blah, and all that kind of stuff. I still have the articles. And so just, wow. uh, yeah, the right place at the right time. Yeah, that's beautiful, and, though. And, and being able to do the right thing, because, like I said, I was a really strong swimmer still to this day. Well, listen, Will, I'm going to end it on that, because I love the way it wrapped up with that story, because oh, well, thank you. it's perfect. Thank you.